Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we will be concluding our discussions of Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine, discussing the final 10 chapters of the book. I'm excited. So last time, we ended our discussion with the lengthy chapter, chapter 30, in which a young woman named Lavinia sometimes believes that she's going to be attacked by something called the Lonely One, and sometimes does not believe that she's going to be attacked by the Lonely One. Ultimately, she is attacked. Earlier in the book, the Lonely One seemed to be more of an abstraction, kind of a sense that death comes for us all kind of thing. But the Lonely One takes on particularity in chapter 30. In chapter 31, where we're starting today, we get to see some of the aftermath um, of this attack on Lavinia by the Lonely One that she, as it turns out, successfully repulses. So let's turn to chapter 31. The boys, Doug, Tom, and Charlie, discuss the events surrounding the Lonely One from the previous evening. Part of their concern is that the town, quote, won't be scary anymore, end quote. Some amount of threat or danger is necessary, according to the boys, in order for life to be sufficiently interesting. If the world is just composed of towns without ravines, what kind of stories could we tell? Without strife or struggle, wouldn't life be too boring? This is what the boys seem to be suggesting. And indeed, they are so animated by what they want to see in the world that Tom is able to persuade them that the Lonely One isn't dead. Tom makes the following argument. The Lonely One does not look like a man. The man killed in Lavinia's home looked like a man. Therefore, the man killed is not the Lonely One. The argument rests on a shaky premise, namely that the Lonely One is not a man. The boys want the world to remain enchanted, and in order to prove that it is enchanted, they assume that it is. And because that is what they want to hear, they don't hold themselves to a high standard of evidence. It is when we hear things that we don't like that we suddenly start demanding evidence, or so it is often the case. Um, as a quick aside on the plot, it looks like the candy butcher from the previous chapter, chapter 30 from our last discussion, who claims that he accidentally shared Lavinia's information with the stranger, was the lonely one. So in that sense, we actually met him out of character, so to speak. Um, this is a note that makes the last chapter even creepier, retrospectively. So turning to the next chapter, chapter 32, we can say this. As many chapters do, this one offers a number of comparisons to different approaches to life. For instance, we can compare Doug and Tom's great-grandmother, who this chapter is about, we can compare her, or we can see her, or rather she comes to sight, as a more traditional woman, um, insofar as many, but not all, of the principal activities that have given her life meaning are taking care of her immediate and extended family. In this way, she comes to sight as differing from Lavinia, who we talked about last time. Lavinia is 33. Uh, while never being married, or never having been married before. We see a lot of Lavinia's friends, whereas we see a lot of the great-grandmother's family. So in that way, we see a sort of traditional woman compared to a more modern woman. Um, and also, we see a different kind of comparison between Colonel Freelay, 
the man who spoke to the boys about history and who died in a small sense, a kind of heroic death insofar as he wanted adventure in the last moments that he was alive. Um, you know, as he calls his friend in Mexico, just to hear the sounds of Mexico City and, and hopes to talk to the boys one more time. But if we compare Colonel Freelay and the great-grandmother, we see that the colonel was desperate to have a moment or two of excitement at the end of his life. He craved company, as we were just uh, remarking on. Whereas the great-grandmother, on the other hand, wished, ultimately, to be alone. They are united, though, in both accepting that they will die. So when the great-grandmother of Douglas and Tom is ready for death, why isn't she filled with fear? Here are at least two reasons, and there are probably more, that the story seems to present. The first is this. She has seen, as it says, as the book says, all of the movies before. In other words, she's seen a great many patterns of human behavior and doesn't really feel that there is too much more to see. Humans are very interesting, but there are limits to the range of actions and speeches they are capable of and the passions that they can undergo. You can see a human being, maybe after a certain amount of time, think, I've seen somebody like that before. There's a lot of variation, but uh, not infinite variation in a sense. Now, a second reason that the grandmother might not fear death at the end, um, and that might be more important, is that she doesn't feel like she is dying. She considers her subjective self as a component part of a larger whole. One part, that is to say her, is ceasing to move and to be aware, but the rest, that is to say her family, remains. Therefore, in her view, she remains. In her words, quote, important, this is not the me that's lying here, but the me that's sitting on the edge of the bed looking back at me, and the me that's downstairs cooking supper, or out in the garage under the car, or in the library reading. All the new parts, they count. I'm not really dying today. No person ever died that had a family. End quote. By working for, caring for, and loving her family, she's not, sorry, she's not imparted a piece of, or she has imparted a piece of herself into each of them. Um, and she helps to forge them into a kind of whole of which she is a part. We can compare this to Doug's reaction to the colonel's death. He was worried that each person the colonel had told him stories about would die with the colonel. It thus became Doug's solemn duty to record their stories and the story of the colonel. Bradbury then has us consider multiple pathways by which human beings either try to sustain themselves or others after life ends to try to impart some measure of immortality. So the colonel, um, he tells stories. Douglas will pass on these stories. The grandmother has family, and her deeds will live on insofar as she shaped them, that she is part of their whole in a way. Now, to return to the theme of comparison again, there is a sharp and perhaps slightly unflattering comparison made within the chapter itself. Once everyone realizes that the great-grandmother is going to die, they seek her company. She wishes to see Tom, and then afterwards, Doug, each alone. Tom, when he enters her room, does not say a word. He allows the great-grandmother to say exactly what she wishes as her final words. 
he lets this moment be about her and about how she wanted to conduct this final meeting with her great-grandson. Conversely, Doug speaks first when he enters and is understandably in horror at the prospect that great-grandma won't be there to do the things she usually does. But in this way, he makes it about him and forces great-grandma to comfort him rather than it being the other way around. It is harsh to blame Doug for this, so it makes Tom's reaction all the more remarkable. The chapter ends with great-grandma thinking that she must have been dreaming before she was born, and then she woke up. Now she will return to the dream. Perhaps she hopes or thinks that she will wake up again, but we don't know. Now we turn to chapter 33. The chapter begins with Tom wondering if he is seeing a ghost. It turns out to be Doug, who has a mason jar full of fireflies, because it will attract less attention from his parents than a flashlight will. He has to evade their detection in order to write more about his summer. Now, rather than merely recording the latest event, he makes an attempt to gather general lessons from the particular experiences that he's undergone. The first lesson that he derives, you can't depend on things. If we take this sentence in an overly literal way, that is to say the sentence, you can't depend on things, it means that you can't trust in any object because they will always let you down. They won't do what you expect them to do. But as we read through Doug's list of evidence for his lesson, we see that what he is truly concerned with is that you can't depend on things forever. We've talked in earlier lectures or discussions about the green machine, tennis shoes, and the trolley. All of them end, um, and these things have to end somewhere. Whether they wear out or someone makes something new, all of these are ephemeral, which is to say, from the perspective of eternity, they last a very short time. This insight prepares us for the more painful one that follows. The second lesson that Doug derives from his notebook or journal on his experiences over the summer is, you can't depend on people. So first he says we can't depend on things. Now he says you can't depend on people. One might imagine someone writing about not being able to depend on people because they are dishonest. That is to say that people are dishonest or because people aren't reliable or that they have, you know, speeches and deeds disorder. They don't always, you know, do what they say they're going to do. Um, but Doug says nothing like this. That's, those are reasons you could have said that human beings are unreliable because they lie or, you know, don't do what they say that they're going to do. But rather, Doug sees it this way. One cannot depend on human beings forever, just like they can't depend on objects forever. They pass away or they go away. And this prepares us for the darkest insight yet in the chapter, though it is not an insight that Doug is ready to have or to accept. So the third insight, it's harder to summarize uh, as concisely as we did the last two. So Doug is led to attempt to apply the previous two lessons, you can't depend on things and you can't depend on people, to himself. If things and people fall, sorry, if things and people die or can't be relied upon or depended upon, then it would follow that I, Doug, 
and he doesn't finish the sentence. This is a short paraphrase of Doug's paragraph. Crucially, at the exact moment when he takes his thought about dependability to its logical conclusion that he would die, he pulls away from writing it. There would be too much finality. Seeing and holding on to the idea of one's mortality might then be the condition of growing up if this is a book about what does it mean for a child to become an adult? What does it mean for a boy to become a man? What is the most important lesson when it comes to being mature or understanding oneself and the world as it is? Now, if one applies this teaching strictly, um, this teaching about the unreliability of human beings, it would harshly suggest that most adults, most of the time, believe in an unthinking way that they will live forever. Or rather, I guess we could say the fact that Doug is unable to accept his mortality. And if we take it to be the case that really becoming mature or becoming an, an adult or becoming philosophic, which is not, well, we'll just leave it at that. Um, if that entails accepting your mortality and really seeing it and feeling it and accepting it, then that would mean, yeah, that again, most adults are not able to really fully reconcile themselves to this fact, even if they can admit it from time to time. Um, another way to understand this kind of point is a day just spent phone scrolling and Netflix watching, which I have done, except for the phone scrolling part, although, you know, I've, I've looked at Twitter before on a computer, um, but I don't have a smartphone. But the, but the moral of the story is, like, I've done this kind of thing myself, so I'm not just passing judgment on others and not on myself. But if you do that kind of thing, if you're just watching stuff and scrolling, that's a day lived. You're living it as if you're immortal, as if there are no consequences for you just enduring, or not enduring, but undergoing entertainment. And to feel the, the force of the argument, we could say that no one on their deathbed wishes that they had watched more TV or scrolled the internet more. Nobody wishes that. Nobody thinks like, wow, I wish I'd done more of that. So... The specter of death compels us to confront whether we are living well or not. It doesn't make sense to live every day as if it is our last in a way. Um, well, maybe insofar as that makes most people think that they ought to do extravagant things and you know waste all their money. But we can certainly live as if it is good not to waste time once we really feel the fact of our mortality. Of course, of course, we need rest and play. However, no one admires themselves after a day where they are just scrolling or watching. No one admires themselves uh, on that kind of day. We loathe ourselves, uh, especially as we turn away from the screen. We admire ourselves after accomplishing difficult tasks, whether it's completing a faster two-mile time than we ever had before, or whether it's writing something that we intend uh, to write, that we you know set out to do. So, at the close of this chapter, as Doug reflects on what he's um, learned from all the particular events of the summer, the narrator notes that Doug releases the fireflies that he had used to uh, provide him some light while he writes. He releases the fireflies back into the night air. Um, and the narrator puts it this way, quote, They departed like the pale fragments of a final twilight in the history of a dying world, end quote. Whose world is dying? Or what is meant by that? 
my stab at it is to say that the world of Doug's childhood innocence is on the edge of dying. But the ING in dying is important. It is still happening, and it is not yet completed. There's still more to the book. The drama of the Doug chapters now becomes, as far as I can tell from here until the end of the book, whether or not, or to what extent, he can accept his mortality, and what lessons could he draw from that acceptance or failure to accept it. We turn then to chapter 34. This chapter shows, in a big way, that Doug is not ready to accept his mortality. Rather, he becomes highly interested in, old, in an old tarot card game machine at an arcade that features an animatronic woman or witch that dispenses fortunes. Doug invites his brother Tom to see the machine, and Tom doesn't understand what the big deal is. He asks Doug why they are here, and Doug replies, all the time asking why, because that's, sorry, because that's why, because. In other words, he refuses to supply a reason, and so abandons rationality. It may be that one of the cornerstones of being reasonable is genuinely accepting one's mortality. Doug saw a cowboy movie that has cut him to the core before going to, these tarot, to, to this tarot card machine. He'd seen, he'd seen thousands of on-screen deaths before, but the latest one he truly empathizes with. He saw himself in the man's death. This experience has led him to think of the world as infinitely more dangerous than ever before. At any moment, it might threaten to snap him up forever. The dam of childlike innocence has broken and the waters of death rush through. The terror which seemed to have broken, <clears throat> or the machine had seemed to have broken, but she stirs back to life in order to deliver Doug another message. The same message that she had dispensed previously. A message that, among other things, promises long life. By getting the same message, Doug could have drawn the conclusion that, that the machine tends to spit out the same message every time, or that it has a limited number of messages, which is to say, draw the conclusion that the messages don't really mean anything. But his fear of death, or this passion, conditions his thought. He overinterprets every event in the chapter to be more meaningful than they actually are. Why does Doug seek out prophecy? He feels that the world is now a fundamentally unpredictable place. Worse than that, it might not merely be unpredictable, it might be downright malevolent. After all, hasn't in Doug's view, as we've seen in previous chapters, hasn't the world conspired to take so many things away from him? He is thus in search of a resource that might alleviate this condition. By turning to prophecy, he hopes to have located a secure account of the future that will alleviate his anxiety by guaranteeing his safety long into the future. And based on some passages in the chapter, perhaps forever. The machine breaks and gives Doug a paper with no message. He naturally assumes that there is a secret hidden message that will tell him what he wants to hear. But why would he need this if the last fortunes already told him what he wanted to hear? 
For a person who is overly consumed by a fear of death, they can never have too many assurances of their future. But if or to the extent that one needs more than one divine assurance, at what point will one be satisfied? Doug wishes for security and prophecy, but he doesn't allow himself to completely trust it. Doug goes to the library to work on spells that might help him rescue the tarot witch. His brother Tom goes back to the arcade and spends a lot of money. He knows the habits of the arcade owner, and the owner, once in possession of Tom's money, briefly steps out of the arcade in order to get a couple of drinks, though Bradbury is very discreet in his account of it. Which is to say, Doug has turned to increasingly arcane ways to get what he wants, whereas his brother Tom seems to be more fully rooted in the way that things are, using his observations of particular circumstances rather than spells, spending money to get the owner to step out to go drink, as a, which would allow you to do something to the you know tarot machine, um, as opposed to come up with spells. To make a long story short, the drunken owner returns. He attacks the glass surrounding the tarot witch and passes out from drinking after noting that Doug and Tom are there. The brothers take the witch out of her machine in order to save her, as Doug hopes. He thinks that the woman is, or he thinks that a woman is trapped inside of the machine. They leave to go home, but the owner wakes up and follows them. He rips the witch out of their hands when he catches up to them and throws her into the ravine. What an absurd scene to see a drunken man steal what is effectively a mannequin from two children who stole the mannequin from an arcade very late at night. Doug retrieves the witch from the ravine while Tom brings their father to the site. Their father is not harsh with them at all. Indeed, he dips back into his experience as a child and realizes that he had similarly obsessive moments about how enchanted the world is or isn't. With the witch safely in the garage, Tom asks Doug if they should cut into it to see the machinery. Doug resists this request because he still insists that some kind of woman is trapped in the machine. Uh, he insists on not cutting beneath the surface because to see the wires for himself in the machine would eliminate his capacity to entertain the remote possibility that he can save a female spirit from it and so become worthy of immortality or protection from death or something like that. In this way, he tacitly admits his doubt of the opportunity to unlock divine providence, but he is so desperate that he refuses to foreclose such a possibility. We turn now to chapter 35. If the last chapter has something to do with the hope for divine assistance in the quest for immortality, in this chapter, we see Tom performing a relentlessly scientific activity by counting the cicada buzzes over 15 seconds and adding 39 to the number. I thought that this must have been something Bradbury made up so that Tom would, would be, again, pseudoscientific like he might have been earlier in the book. But it turns out that this is a real thing. That Now, admittedly, some contemporary scientists say, that you should add 37 instead of 39 to the number of buzzes you hear over 15 seconds. But, you know, 37 is pretty close. 
So what is this chapter doing here? I'm not quite sure. Is the rising heat, um, because it turns out to be very hot, is the rising heat meant to anticipate Doug's illness in a soon-to-come chapter? Or is it meant to show us the kind of activity that Tom is preoccupied with as compared to Doug's quest to, you know, see the world as enchanted from the last chapter? It could be one of those, um, it could be something else. But with that said, we turn to chapter 36. Here we meet Mr. Jonas, a traveling junk carrier who truly fulfills the motto that one man's trash is another man's treasure. He does not take any money for those who wish to take the junk or the sort of, if they want to draw anything from the big pile of objects that he carries around um, in a kind of, you know, big wagon. All that is required in order to take something from the wagon is for it to be something you both want and need, or that you could not live the day without. Uh, that's the only requirement for taking something from it. So Jonas will ask you, so you have to look at him in the eye um, and say, is it something you want and need? And if that's the case, then it's yours. So one's immediate impulse, your immediate desire to seize something isn't enough. Jonas requires at least some reflection on the part of the person taking something. They have to give an account of how whatever they take fulfills a want and a need. They have to be at least somewhat reasonable. Now, we receive an indication that Mr. Jonas might have become wealthy before his life as a kind of strange version of Santa Claus. If a certain, sorry, if a, if a certain amount of wealth frees one up to do what one pleases, then we can say that Mr. Jonas is doing exactly what he wants to do, dragging a wagon of a variety of objects through the hot sun so that he can help people find something that will improve their lives. Though, as the next, as the next chapter shows, that is not all that he does. And so let's turn to that chapter. This will be chapter 37. Doug falls ill in this chapter, and Bradbury leads us to wonder if his sickness is in part psychological and not only physiological, which is a striking but not unreasonable claim that a malady of the mind could cross over into the body. Doug reviews the things that he lost over the summer, the same things that led him to long to, to yearn for immortality not so long ago in the life of the book. Namely, there are six things that he points to. First, Mr. Tridden and his trolley. Um, the trolley is replaced by a bus, although we don't see any buses in the book. So this is one thing that he lost. The second, his friend John moved away. Third, the green machine went away. The owners, Miss Fern and Miss Roberta, ran a man over at a slow speed in one of our earlier lectures, or we discussed this then. And so they retired their motor vehicle. Fourth, Colonel Freelay passed away. Fifth, Mr. Alfman's happiness machine broke down. And finally, um, Doug's great-grandmother passed away. Now, none of these are the worst thing that can happen to a person. But put together, they constitute a harsh education about life's difficulties and the inherent fragility of our situation as human beings. 
A core question that we will have to consider in the last chapter of the book is, does Doug qualitatively change in how he understands the world in light of this harsh education and loss? Or is his understanding fundamentally the same? Is there some kind of turning of the soul? Or is there a failure of the soul to turn? However that may be, although we will discover it quite soon, Bradbury emphasizes that the heat in Greentown is so great that more or less all outdoor activities cease, except for those of Mr. Jonas. If Santa Claus can endure the cold without difficulty, so Mr. Jonas can endure the heat. Tom is driven out of his house because he can't stand to see his brother endure so much suffering in light of his illness. And he asks Mr. Jonas to help Doug. Mr. Jonas asks, what's wrong? And Tom's response is astonishing. Because the things that he lists are entirely different than that list of six things uh, we discussed above. Tom focuses on the small day-to-day petty injustices and misfortunes that we all experience every day. Now, as we've seen before, Tom seemed to exhibit a remarkable ability to see the world as it is in previous chapters, or to see things in the right proportions. But perhaps rather than Tom having something like philosophy or rationality as the core of what had moved him before, Maybe his heart hasn't developed enough to really feel the sting of loss in the same way that Doug does. I'm not entirely sure, but at any rate, it is awfully bizarre that he mentions a clay Tarzan toy and bad trades of knickknacks instead of losing your great-grandmother, you know, coming upon the colonel's body dead. Those seem infinitely more significant. But the things that Tom mentions, again, are, yeah, toys and knickknacks and those things not going the right way. So what is the best way to make sense of this? Mr. Jonas passes on wind crystals to Tom, ultimately, and says that he will talk with Doug. He's stymied in his attempt to talk with Doug initially by Doug's mother. She doesn't want anybody to talk to Doug so that he's not bothered, um, that his condition is too bad in order you know, to have conversations, and especially conversations with traders. And maybe she doesn't want, you know, Doug to talk to a junk dealer. Um, She might not trust him. But nevertheless, Doug eventually, at the end of the chapter, is put to sleep outside that night. There's no air conditioning at this time in history. So it's cooler outside. um, And because of, you know, them putting Doug to sleep outside, Um, Mr. Jonas is able then to speak with Doug at night without any interference. Jonas says the following, quote, Some people turn sad awfully young. No special reason, it seems, but they seem almost to be born that way. They bruise easier, tire faster, cry quicker, remember longer, and, as I say, get sadder younger than anyone else in the world. I know, for I'm one of them, end quote. Jonas suggests that to some extent, our personality or disposition toward the world is a matter of birth. We can't do anything about it. Some people are sadder than others. They feel more acutely the pain that everyday disappointments bring. But the news isn't all bad, for Jonas says that he is among those that are like this. Presumably Doug is as well. That that would suggest 
that this kind of sensitivity to the harshness of life can give life to a desire to try and alleviate that pain in others and to try and provide for them some small measure of joy. Mr. Jonas leaves Doug with bottles of air from faraway locations that he tells him to breathe in. Whether it is the air that heals Doug or that he feels like someone genuinely understands him and helps him better understand himself that, you know, cures his illness, we cannot say for sure. We turn then to the very brief chapter 38. There was no sound, not even sounds that humans cannot detect like a, like a caterpillar's feet. Bradbury brings out how strikingly different the universe looks from a caterpillar's perspective. For a caterpillar, a backyard might feel like a vast continent. Was Doug allowing? Now, so then we're led to ask, like, why, why do we hear about the caterpillar? What's going on here? The best thing to say or the best thing I can say on Doug's behalf or on Bradbury's behalf is that could it be that Doug was allowing what was small, what was caterpillar-like, um, appeared to him as too big? Was he too unable to view his life from the perspective of eternity? Though admittedly, again, that's a very difficult thing to do. However this may be, as the chapter end ends, the rain falls. In chapter 39, uh, we turn to chapter 39, and this chapter features another striking clash between generations. We see grandma, not great-grandma, of course, grandma versus Aunt Rose. Doug says of his grandmother's kitchen, Is this where the world began? For surely it had begun in no other place than this. The kitchen, without doubt, was the center of creation. All things revolved about it. It was the pediment that sustained the temple. End quote. Uh, Grandma's sensational cooking helps bind the family together as the extended Spalding family seems to get together as many nights as they can. This kitchen is also perpetually dirty, so perhaps it appears like primordial goo that needs to be given shape by a loving creator. Aunt Rose is impressed by the excellence of grandmother's cooking. She likes the conclusion, but she wonders if it could be improved even more. She is fueled by the optimism that technology and the routinization of technique can stir in people. When Aunt Rose looks at the kitchen, she sees a set of problems that can be solved. The kitchen is disorderly. Things are poorly labeled. Grandma can't see very well and there are no cookbooks so that recipes can be reliably repeated. She wants to turn grandma's cooking into a process or technical skill that can easily be repeated. And we might add, the more that a method or process is introduced into a setting, the more replaceable its practitioners become. If we have a reliable method that is transferable, then grandma is not indispensable. Somebody else could cook the food. To put it simply, over-dependence on method eliminates individuality. Aunt Rose works to make Grandma's kitchen more efficient. She gets her glasses, a cookbook, things labeled, and everything put away. And to Aunt Rose's credit, the next dinner comes out a half hour early. Very efficient, but it tastes like shit. Doug thinks back to Mr. Jonas and how much he owes him for saving his life, so to speak. 
he realizes that he cannot ever really pay Mr. Jonas back, but he can do good for others. And so this, in a way, seems like a kind of moral development or a moral growth on behalf of Doug. Although we'll have to see next chapter, the final chapter, if this is a, uh, if this growth is held on to. Now, however this may be, he realizes he can do good for others and he can seek opportunities to improve his grandmother's life in ways that Mr. Jonas helped his life. So Doug does two things. First, Doug's takes, or sorry, excuse me, Doug takes Aunt Rose on an extended tour of Greentown, but it is a ruse designed to get her out of the house long enough for other family members to pack up her bags. This step, while important, is not enough to return dinner to excellence. An additional step is required. So the second step that Doug takes is he realizes that Aunt Rose's, quote, gift of efficiency is still in place. Aunt Rose doesn't have to be there for the new, for the new techniques to remain. So Doug hides the glasses, unlabels things, and returns the kitchen to its proper state of organized chaos. In this way, Grandma is finally able to return to instinctual cooking. Aunt Rose tried to overly rationalize a process that did not need any extra reason added to it. I wonder if this is another illustration by Bradbury that the world isn't as knowable or understandable as we would like it to be. Aunt Rose was not motivated by a malicious intent. She thought that improving the process would make delicious dinners even better and more easily produced. She thought that she could bring the situation under greater control through superior knowledge. But Grandma's talent was more mysterious than she realized. And so we turn to chapter 40, the final chapter. Summer is over. The clearest sign that it is over is that the dime store has pencils in the window. It is said that these are from, quote, another world. End quote. The world of school and the world of summer can be very different. They feel different and have different rules governing them. Doug asks Tom if the next year will be better, and Tom replies, Don't ask me. I didn't make the world, though some days I feel like I did. On one hand, Tom proposes that the future is too mysterious, too immanifest to know whether it will improve or not. He did not create the world, and so the causes that determine its character are unknown to him. He's playing a game, and he knows or thinks that he knows some of the rules, but not all of them. It is striking that he sometimes feels like he did. What does that mean? That he participated in creating some of its rules? Or that he feels so central or important to it that it feels like it was created by him? Or that he is so in tune with its rhythms that he can accept it as it is? Um, his statement's not altogether clear, but those are different ways of trying to understand it. Doug is filled with hope and thinks that the next year will turn out better. More people will die, more babies will be born, and, quote, me in the middle of it all, end quote. This almost looks like an improvement on his previous disposition, uh, especially towards death, in that he seems to accept that mortality is a necessary part of life. But it appears troubling that he sees himself in the center of it all, 
Could it be that the grief he experienced earlier made him feel more important? More a kind of central character in the world's story? Sadness often centers our thinking on ourselves, on the emotion that is causing us pain. Doug did do something generous for his grandmother in the previous chapter, in a bid to pass on goodness in order to thank Mr. Jonas. But this seems to have exacerbated his narcissistic tendencies. Could Mr. Jonas have um, unwillingly done Doug a grave disservice? That is, did Mr. Jonas intensify Doug's feelings of self-importance? After all, most of us don't have mysterious providential junk dealers whisper to us in the middle of the night and give us exotic air from faraway places in order to cure our maladies. Tom emphasizes that Doug, by saying that he's in the middle of everything, has missed something important when he replies that, quote, you and two zillion other people, Doug, remember? End quote. That is, while people die and are born, zillions other people will also be living their lives and doing the best they can. But Doug resists Tom's sobering suggestion and says, day like today, I feel it'll be just me. Doug doubles down on the world being about and for him. And then in this way, the book ends just as it began. It began with Doug imagining that he was bringing summer into being, that he was like a god bringing about a new season, a season that was just for him. He ends the book doing the same thing. Does this suggest that despite the eventful summer that Doug has undergone, that his education in loss did not fundamentally change him, that it even heightened his sense of narcissism or sense that he is at the center of a cosmos that is for him? A striking ending to a beautiful and wonderful book. Um, and even though the book is composed of short stories, I think, in, in a way, like like Bradbury published a lot of it like via short stories in different magazines and then kind of like pulled it all together in the end. But it seems to me that there is a thematic clarity in that Ultimately, the question, what does Doug learn in light of this education and loss? And does he take something away from it? Do we take something away from it? You can talk a lot about death, learn a lot about death, but ultimately to actually feel your mortality in the strictest and fullest sense and to really believe uh, or rather even know that you're going to die and then live your life in full awareness of that fact is a much harder thing to do. And I think Bradbury is trying to show us that that's the case. And so he teaches us something about philosophy that um, is pretty important. So with that said, uh, it's been a delight talking to you about uh, Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine. I hope you have enjoyed this if you've listened to all four discussions. Um, Brian uh, Wilson is now out.